All right, here we go again, back with the podcast. This is Domain Query Fruit Salad Day. And a very warm welcome to all of my longtime readers from the site, all of my longtime listeners from Podbean. And uh, we have a bit of a laundry list as uh, our longtime reader and friend of the site, uh, Randall E6, has sent it over. It's uh, six different questions which are very well worth answering in some detail. So, so I've put the questions down below in the um, description box and you can see them there. I'll read them out for you right now. So there are like six different questions on various topics. Uh, the first one is, is homosexuality innate, conditioned, quote unquote, or a mix of the two? Second, is the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago a sign of establishment power or fear? Third, having just done a modern art history uh, course for elective credit filling, what exactly happened? It seems from approximately the 1850s to 1929, half the art became crap. And then from 1929 onwards, the art became a stealing pile of Biden shit. Uh, fourth, what is the line between nationalism and fascism? And where do the, uh, where do Pinochet from Chile and Franco from Spain fall on this continuum? Fifth, relating to the above, are some countries only suited for the great man style of leadership? characterized by a highly charismatic, capable leader with, at minimum, an authoritarian streak. Latin countries in particular come to mind, along with Russia. And sixth, having listened to Adam Pickett's recent podcast, I have a curious question. As backward and barbaric as Islam can be, is their approach to women and their management the correct one? So, as you can see, a lot of different uh, questions here, lots of different ideas to bat around. And I'll go through them one at a time. So this will be probably a rather lengthy uh, domain query, but I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, set and I'm more than happy to answer it. So with respect to the first question, is homosexuality innate, conditioned, or a mix of the two? I want to make it very clear right off the bat, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a psychologist, I have no background in either of these disciplines. I am not a sociologist, I have no... Uh, I have no academic credentials of any kind to state definitively one way or another. I'm definitely not a geneticist, of course. So whatever you hear me say, take with a big pinch of salt. I am putting this caveat out there simply because I don't want people to get the wrong idea and think that just because I say it, it this is the way it is. No, it's not. Everything You should always subject every single thing I say, every single thing I write to the very simple test of whether or not it is true. Do not take me as authoritative. Don't take anybody as authoritative. Just go out and do your own homework and research. Now, having said all that, what I have seen with respect to homosexuality, and I don't pretend to understand it very well because I find it disgusting and deeply immoral, and even more so now that I follow Christ, it's a a very, very wrong-headed way of looking at the world um, and of acting and has been recognized as such by virtually every single culture ever in history. There's a very good reason why homosexuality is regarded as deeply shameful in every masculine culture anywhere in the world, including the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans, who um, were much more permissive of such things than we are today, oddly enough. Uh, even pagan cultures regarded homosexuality as something deeply shameful, except for specific pockets at specific times, such as Thebes back in the day. And uh, the Spartans, although their, their, their take on things was, like as with just about everything else about the Spartans, was weird. Anyway, Is it innate, meaning is it something that you have genetically or spiritually? Well, if it's genetic, then that's a bit of a problem because one of the core arguments of the LGBTQ WTF is the shit crowd is that homosexuals are born that way. But the moment you bring up the extant research into whether or not homosexuality has a genetic component, they get very, very antsy. Because given modern gene editing technology, 
and given research into genetics. If homosexuality can be found as a genetic condition, that means it can be screened for in utero. And that means that uh, countries that allow abortion, the murdering of babies, will see a substantial spike in male and female uh, children born with a dominant homosexual gene or dominant homosexual trait. And that is something the, the, the lettuce, gay, bacon and tomato crowd cannot tolerate because that would mean their extinction. Now, from an evolutionary perspective, does homosexuality make sense? Obviously not, because it is entirely uh, antithetical to the propagation of a genetic component. So my view is that, to a great extent, homosexuality cannot be innate. If it is innate, then that means there are ways to test for it, there are ways to find it, there are ways to eliminate it in the population. And, and by the way, when I say eliminate it, I want to make this very clear. This is not something I want. I do not support any kind of uh, violence against homosexuals in any way. I'm completely against that. I just don't think that, you know, it's a very good idea to follow that mode of, of, of life. I think it's disgusting. It's immoral. But I don't wish harm upon them. I just don't want to be around them. Um, if you can screen for it, you can get rid of it. And if it is genetic, then it is something that is inherently self-defeating. If you take the arguments of evolutionary biology, it does not make sense for homosexuality to be something genetic at all. So then the question is, well, is homosexuality something that comes from the spirit or from the culture? I think it, if it is a spiritual thing, then only then can it be considered innate. Now, from a spiritual perspective, this, this creates all sorts of questions and problems because when a child is conceived as a union of two souls, that's, that's essentially what we Christians view the moment of, of conception to be, the union of two souls to create another one, then if homosexuality is innate, like at that moment the child is destined to be homosexual, then that causes all sorts of problems because it, it exposes one to the argument that God does not make mistakes. Well, no, he doesn't. He uses every single soul, every single um, human on this earth to his ends. And that end is the ultimate defeat and destruction of Satan and the remaking of the universe without sin, without blemish, as it was always meant to be. So if that union somehow is broken, you know, through some spiritual mechanism, does that not mean that God himself is imperfect because his method of propagating the human race is imperfect? Now, I'm nowhere near theologian enough to go into the details of this. I'm not, I, I don't have the qualifications or the skills. There are plenty of people who will argue for or against this particular point of view. And since I'm on shaky ground, all I will say is that I personally, and I'm happy to be challenged on this, I personally do not believe that in that process of conception, the union of the souls is therefore corrupted by Satan somehow, because he doesn't intervene in those ways. He can't. The corruption comes much more from uh, the spiritual diseases that he sends forth into the world, the, the, the sin, the malice, the evil, and free human choice. And remember, according to us as Christians, all evil, all of it, derives from free choice. We chose to sin. We choose every day to sin. And so the idea of innate homosexuality under that paradigm does not make sense. Again, happy to be challenged on that. I'm sure there are many different points of view. This is just my take on it. So, you know, I could very easily be wrong. 
So in that case, homosexuality is largely, if not entirely, conditioned. Now, I think the evidence in support of this view is much stronger, and here's why. If you look at male homosexuals in particular, one of the dirty little secrets that their community doesn't want you to know about is just how many of them grew up that way through abuse in childhood. They were groomed by older homosexual men, abused, uh, you know, older male homosexual pedophiles. And I realize, you know, this is not pleasant to talk about. I'm sorry about that. This is not pleasant for me to speak about either. Uh, genuinely, I'm sorry about uh, having to say these things because it is disgusting. It is, it is nasty. It's not something you want to talk about, but, you know, it is what it is, right? We have to bring out these, these perversions and subject them to the disinfectant that is God's light in order to get rid of them. But the reality is that a very large percentage of male homosexuals, I would argue, personally, the overwhelming majority of them, uh, come from backgrounds that were abusive and uh, problematic and almost always stem from a weak or non-present father figure who did not present a positive role model of masculine heterosexual conduct to the son. Too many stories abound of both male and female homosexuals being abused in childhood, not knowing what it means to grow up with proper role models of what male and female conduct looks like, and going down this very, very dark path, which leads to very bad places, almost universally, at least to very, very bad places. Uh, homosexuals are much more likely to abuse their intimate partners. Go look up the statistics. They're horrifying. And they are much more likely to engage in violent abuse uh, of their partners. Again, go look up the statistics, particularly with lesbians. The statistics are absolutely mind-boggling. Now, on top of that, I mean, on top of the intimate partner violence and the pederasty that, that, that breaks children and, and makes them into these things, we have evidence from what you might call deconverted homosexuals or people who have given up homosexuality. And this comes from a, a very unpleasant but necessary book by Moira Grayland, um, the daughter of two of the absolutely, the absolutely most wretched people who ever lived. Um, Marion Zimmer Bradley and uh, whatever, his, whatever her husband's name was, prolific serial abusers of children. I mean, uh, the, the, deg the degree of depravity in that family is just appalling. It's horrifying. If you read Moira Grayland's book, The Last Closet, The Last Closet, excuse me, you won't want to read it. I mean, it's a it's a phenomenal book, but you won't want to read it. You'll want to take an acid bath in hydrochloric acid and sulfuric acid afterwards, because it just feels so wretched. The things she describes in that book are just I don't know how she survived. And yet, if you read her book, that the quiet dignity and the grace and the strength of character that she has, and her faith in God, in Christ, really comes through. It shines through as a beacon of what someone who's subjected to absolutely horrendous abuse in her life can become. It really is a testament to human potential. And in that book, she points out that she knows a great many homosexuals who have turned away from that path and said, I don't want to do this anymore. It's a, it's, it's a blight upon my soul. It's destroying me physically, mentally, spiritually. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to be a normal, you know, healthy human being. I want to walk in God's light. And they put aside that sin and walk away from it. So you can't walk away from it if it's innate, right? You, you can't do that. I mean, it's like saying you're short and you now want to be tall. Well, how? I mean, you're not going to be able to do that. It's just you are what you are based on your genetics. You can change some things about yourself. Yes, you can change your posture. You can change 
your overall appearance. You can change certain aspects of the way you walk and you move and you talk. You can, you can, you, you have control over some things, but your stature, your genes, your, your overall physical health, a lot of that is predetermined, right? By, by your genes. You can't do much about it. You can help things along or you can hurt them, but you can't change them exactly. So, I mean, if you're predisposed to cancer, you're predisposed to cancer, right? You're, you're at a heightened risk. There's nothing you can do about that. You can mitigate the situation, but you can't change that fact. Whereas, if you are predisposed to homosexuality, you, you know, you could walk away from it, maybe, but you're always going to be a homosexual. However, that is not the case with a lot of these people who have walked away completely and said, no, I don't want to do this anymore. The case of Milo Yiannopoulos is, is a rather interesting one. Now, I'm not, I'm not entirely, I'm not actually, I'm not at all convinced by Milo because he is a flamboyant gay man or was and claims or claimed, I have, I've lost track of him for the last couple of years, uh, to have walked away from that lifestyle, you know, basically walked away from his black gay husband, uh, husband in inverted commas in, in, in quote, quotation marks, they're not married by any reasonable standard. They are not married. Um, you cannot, by definition, marry the same sex. It's just not possible. So he walked away from that arrangement, whatever it was, and said, I don't want to do this anymore. Now, is he still like that? I have no clue. I haven't looked him up. But take a look at what he has to say on the subject and... It'll be interesting to see if he stays on that path of celibacy and obedience to God. But, uh, you know, I, given what he's like, I, I rather doubt it. So in my view, personally, in my view, homosexuality is conditioned. And it's conditioned through childhood abuse, very largely. There are plenty of homosexuals who will say, no, this was a free choice of mine. Okay, fine. Believe what you want. Um, but I think if you did a serious study on this, I think if you really looked at the literature, you would find that these are people who are often mentally abused, physically abused. A lot of them fell in with the wrong crowd. They, uh, don't, they have a very warped understanding of what real love is. They have never really had a, a proper guide to get them through life and we're going to see the ravages of this ideology, and it is an ideology, in the next 20 years as the current generation of children grows up with this insane transgender, gender-bending, you know, you can be whatever gender you want to be nonsense, which will leave them completely broken as adults because they have no positive reinforcement, no positive role models of any kind. So... Leaving that aside, um, second, is the raid on the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago a sign of establishment power or of fear? I think it's both. The, the raid on Monday night, um, I think it was Monday night, uh, cent, uh, Florida time, central, whatever it's called, central time, uh, I guess. The FBI crossed a line, I mean, a major line was crossed that day. And it is clear, the more we hear, the more that comes out, it becomes very clear that they were looking for something. This excuse that they raided the God Emperor's home in order to recover documents that were confidential is ridiculous. I mean, on its face, prima facie, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. The constitutional precedent and the legal precedent on the subject is absolutely clear. A president cannot be prosecuted for having those documents in his possession. He has every right to keep those documents. He has every right to give them to the National Archive, and he has every right to use them to create his own presidential library. Robert Barnes explained this very, very well in a two-and-a-half-hour live stream with the Alexes from the Duran a couple of days ago. Very well worth watching and listening to. Go check it out if you haven't. Leave it on the background, but Robert Barnes does a phenomenal job of explaining both the legal and constitutional background to all of this. There is no precedent whatsoever that the FBI has for any of this. So they, they really overstepped and it is impossible that 
Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, and Christopher Wray did not both sign off on this. That much is very, very clear. It is absolutely impossible that a, a warrant this high level, that is this egregious in its abuse of power, could not have been signed off by them. So there is a power element at play. Certainly they want to harass Trump. I mean, there's no doubt about that. They, they want to harass him, and they've been wanting to destroy him ever since 2015. For seven years, Donald Trump has been the subject of repeated witch hunts and trials to destroy his reputation and his career. Why? Because he basically said, I'm going to destroy the deep state. I'm going to take on the deep state and return power to the American people. They fear him because he is a heretic. Understand this about Trump, and it's very, very important to figure this out. Everyone of any uh, familiarity with Donald Trump says, well, the guy's a clown, he's a joke, he's a bumbler, he's a buffoon. He talks nonsense. He says ridiculous things. Yeah, okay, fine. He's a flawed man. He really is. He's, he's braggadocious. He's over the top. He's flamboyant. He's absurd. A lot of the things he says are grandiose. They have no basis in fact. Take that as read. Fine. I'll give you all of that. But look at the way he conducts himself in public, and particularly with those below his station. This is a character trait that we see in both Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. If you look at Trump, every single person, without exception, who's ever worked for Trump directly as sort of the help and has interacted with him as somebody of a lower station than he is, every single one talks about how courteous and decent he is in person and how he knows the names of his lower-level employees, and how he goes out of his way to ask them about their families and how they're doing, if they're running into any problems, what can he do to help. He's known, he was known as the blue-collar billionaire before he you know, ran for office, because he had that common touch. And the reason he had that common touch was because of his dad, Fred Trump, uh, who ran like kind of low- and middle-income housing uh, estates, and that's how he made his millions, and then Trump made his billions off of high-end real estate projects. But he never, ever, ever lost that common touch, the ability to relate to the common person, even though he's not a commoner in any way. Trump is a product of the elite. He has always been a product of that elite class. But he's a heretic. He's a rebel against that class. He openly declared war on them when he walked away, declared his apostasy from them. And there's nothing that a cult hates more than an apostate. Look up what Scientologists do to those who have abandoned their cult, and you'll see what I mean. Uh, they absolutely hate it when somebody walks away. Look up, look at what Islam does to people who walk away from Islam, declare themselves to be apostates. They call for their executions. This is what the globalist, global homo cult is doing to Trump. And this brings us on to the fear aspect. We now know that the FBI was looking for contents in Trump's safe, and they opened it up and they found that it was empty. What's up with that? Why the safe? What's in there specifically? Barnes goes into this in some detail, and he talks about how Trump, he speculates, that Trump may well have taken documents extremely harmful to deep state interests, and he's seen them. A number of his close associates have seen them, and he kept them as insurance against precisely this sort of raid. It may not have worked, but it seems as though the establishment is getting very, very desperate to stop him because they know that if he runs in 2024, and I think he will, he will win handily. And he will, he's already declared war on the deep state. I mean, he's basically said, we're going to fire huge numbers of bureaucrats, the administrative state, as he calls it. Now, whether or not he actually does that is a different story, because remember, number one, Trump is a braggart and a bloviator. He's a windbag. That's bad enough. Number two, he is, he, he spent the entire four years of his term fighting against his own people, including people that he should have been able to trust implicitly, including Jared and Ivanka Trump. Well, Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump. He spent his entire first term battling with the generals that he respected and revered and who betrayed him at every turn. John Kelly, James Mattis, um, not General Flynn. General Flynn had his back. Uh, General Milley, all of the other uh, bits of the military top brass 
who came up through the Obama administration and were and remain Obama-selected appointees. This is Trump's blind spot. He's never been able to get past his love affair with the military and his deep respect for the military. He still thinks that the military are the good guys in the United States. Below the rank of colonel, that's probably true. But above that rank? No. I mean, remember, to get to basically, like, there's an old joke. I mean, William S. Lynn tells it all the time. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Tom Kratman has uh, alluded to it a few times that basically, uh, John Ringo has alluded to it as well, that basically to get above the rank of captain, you need a mandatory lobotomy or you need to get your uh, knee pads and lip balm out. And you know what I mean there. Um, if you want to progress above that rank. I mean, anyone below the rank of major probably or its equivalents in the Navy, the, um, uh, they're probably still kind of some of the good guys. But once you go above the level to colonel and above, you're in deep trouble because to get promoted to general, and the U.S. probably has too many generals at this point, you really need to be a, a very, very savvy politician. And the thing about politics in the United States is it is a one-party system, and it, it is comprised of the three different factions, not just two, but three different factions. And I've talked about this before in my podcast about the deep state civil war. The neo-clowns, the, uh, the, the finance wonks, and um, you know, the, the, the other people, I forget exactly what I call them, but there are three different factions in that administrative state, and they're all at war with each other. The, the neo-libs, the neo-clowns, and the, the, the finance wonks, right? So when you see one particular faction gaining power over another, it's like, you know, you're, honestly, it's like watching the Gods of Chaos in the Warhammer 40k universe. They're all constantly scheming and battling against each other and against the forces of order. So that's probably the best way to think of it. Now, the deep state is scared of what those documents in Trump's safe mean. They're scared of it. And they struck out in fear, in desperation. I think there's a very much an element of this. And it, it is possible, just possible, that Trump played them. I don't know. Maybe he did. If he is arrested, this is, I think, the key criterion that we will uh, need to see over the next couple of weeks and months. If Trump is arrested and or indicted, then it was a power display. It was essentially a way of saying, don't, don't screw with us. We're going to destroy you if you screw with us. It's a warning sign to any politician who dares to raise his hand against the establishment. If he is not, and if the FBI tries something else, which being the Praetorian Guard of the deep state, the, the, the globalist swamp, they almost certainly will. If they try something else, then you know that it's fear. Third question, uh, having just done modern art history for elective credit filling, what exactly happened? It seems from the 1850s to 1929, half the art became crap. From 1929 on, the art became a steaming pile of absolute crap. Uh, it's very simple. The Enlightenment and Industrial Age essentially led to the abandonment of all that is good, beautiful, and true. And I completely agree with you about uh, the nature of art. I have seen it myself. I hate modern art. I, I absolutely loathe it. It is disgusting to me. Say, take me to the Tate Britain in, in London, and I'm very happy because it's an amazing art collection. But there's a room in the Tate Britain which has a lot of modern art in it. It's just absolute garbage. And I, I, I physically recoil every time I see it. If you take me through the portrait galleries of the Tate Britain, it's an absolutely astonishing place. Uh, I love being there. The, the Tretyakov Gallery in Moscow has some of the greatest paintings of the last 500 years stored in its exhibitions. It's just mind-blowing how beautiful they are. The National Gallery in London, absolutely astonishing paintings. The uh, sculptures, the artworks, everything. I mean, St. Petersburg, the, the, the Hermitage Museum, you walk through it and you're just like, this is so nice. It's such a pleasant thing to see. And what you're seeing is art that tries to emulate that which is good, beautiful, and true. 
In other words, it represents Christian values. From 1850 onwards, though, the, it is not a coincidence that this is kind of when things started to go very screwy. Here's why. From 1850s onwards was when the Tübingen School in Germany began its most ferocious attacks upon the Bible. This is when the uh, ideas of redacted literary source historical and textual criticism came into being. And they were focused primarily on the Bible. They were invented, really, to attack the Bible. And for a time, for a good 50 to 70 years, the Christian church had no answer to these attacks. Really didn't. Because what happened was that the Tübingen School of Critical Analysis in Germany looked at the various manuscripts and, and fragments that we have of the Bible and kept saying, well, this doesn't make sense and that doesn't make sense and look at this and here's a contradiction and here's a problem and here's this and here's that and we can't find this place and we can't do this and we, we're accepting these things as true and there's no evidence for them and attack after attack after attack on the historicity of Jesus Christ upon the, the historical accuracy of the Bible upon the foundations, the very foundations of the Christian church came right at us as Christians. And we didn't have answers. We did not have answers at that time. We hadn't done enough homework and enough research. Now that changed over time. I mean, we are now at the point where Christians have the tools and the techniques and the data, most importantly, the data to fight back and say, no, these criticisms are wrong. But back then, those tools didn't exist, and the knowledge base didn't exist. So the attacks from the Tübingen School were so successful that the Christian church withered and died in Europe. I'm not joking about this. The church has never recovered in Europe and in the United Kingdom from the attacks made upon it in from the 1850s, pretty much, through to the 1920s. I mean, there was serious crises um, in about... Well, basically in the lead up to World War I. And then World War I happened and you saw the complete destruction of European civilization, pretty much. That resulted in a fragmenting of morality because this whole idea of Christian morality, of, of God trying to intervene to stop humanity from destroying itself seemed to be gone. I mean, the sheer horror of World War I was so great and was so devastating upon the psyche of Europe that it abandoned everything of the old world. The, the old world died in the mud and the blood and the hellscapes of World War I. It really did. That is when you see this sort of very jarring, uh, very bizarre anti-humanistic almost abstract artistic form of expression that you know that's when like um, uh, all of these weird styles cubism expressionism uh, the Bauhaus movement etc etc uh, all started to take off because adherence to all the things that were good beautiful and true meant adherence to the past and the past had failed that generation that's, that's how they felt. Old values, old ideas, old ways of thinking had failed, and they abandoned them completely. And that is why, to a large extent, art since then has been such terrible crap. Because we're not talking about stories or ideas or concepts that uplift us, that ennoble us anymore. If you read the Bible, I mean, there is some horrific stuff in the Bible. Just go read Judges 19 to 21, for example, or the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, for example, Genesis uh, 10, I think. Uh, go read what was done to the Hebrews in Egypt. Go read through, just read through uh, uh, the passages in Numbers and Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy where Israel goes to war and yeah, I mean, just hideous slaughter of, of the worst kind. Uh, go read through First and Second Kings. Go read through Chronicles. You know, it's just endless amounts of slaughter and misery and barbarism. But behind it all, you see the remarkable hand of God 
trying to steer humanity back towards the light, administering punishment when it's necessary, but also giving us hope and giving us faith and courage to stand up against the evil of this world. In the 19, in the early, basically the early 20th century, it seemed that evil had won. And that's when you saw despair and godlessness take hold. It is not a coincidence that the absolute worst art we've ever seen in human history has been in the last 150 years when humanity gave up on God. It's exactly what happens when you do that. This is exactly the course of action. A world that turns its back on God cannot expect to appreciate the good things that God gives us, which means that we can't expect to reproduce any of it or pay tribute to any of it. That's a natural consequence. Fourth question, what is the line between nationalism and fascism and where do Pinochet and Franco fall on this continuum? Excellent question. Not that hard to answer, actually. Here's the best way to look at fascism. Fascism is the same as communism except for one critical detail. The way in which you divide society. Otherwise, it's exactly the same. Why do I say that? It's not me saying this. It's the guy who invented the doctrine of fascism. Giovanni Gentile. Il dottrino del fascismo. If in that book, he points out that the key flaw in Karl Marx's ideology of communism was in his insistence that you could divide society on the basis of class. That class warfare is necessary to create this Workers' Utopia of Communism. Karl Marx, by the way, was a garbage historian. He, I mean, literally blatantly falsified a whole bunch of his data. He did all sorts of things that were absolute nonsense. I mean, he, he tortured the data to fit into his theory, and his theory was terrible. I mean, you could dismantle the entire labor theory of value in five minutes using analogies from a kitchen. I'm not joking about that. Go read uh, Starship Troopers, the, the, the great Starship Troopers by the legendary Robert Heinlein. Go read that book. There's a, an illustration of, uh, how to destroy the entire labor theory of value in a lecture by, uh, Lieutenant Colonel, uh, G, uh, Jean Dubois, um, Jean Dubois, I think. Yeah. Uh, in, in that book. And it, it just, it uses, you know, kitchen analogies. But the basic theory of, um, of class warfare is what Gentile said is the problem. He, at the time, the labor theory of value seemed to sort of make sense for some reason. I don't think anybody really sat down and thought it through um, beyond the Austrian school, which just dismantled the whole theory. I mean, Mises was like, this is a joke, and ripped it apart. But when Gentile looked at it, he said, no, look, the, the problem is that if you look at the history of class warfare in the very places where Marx said it would happen, it didn't happen. If you look at England or Germany, it didn't happen there. It happened in Russia. Why? And Gentile said, okay, we need to fix this problem. So if you, if you look at uh, uh, Gentile's work, um, he basically said that the true dividing line between peoples is not class, it is actually nation. And uh, in this, you know, in, in Il Dottrino del Fascismo, this was published originally in 1932, I think. And then uh, Gentile uh, turned it into a, a proper book afterwards, I think. And essentially what he said was, instead of dividing people by class, divide them by nationality and divide them along the lines of nations. And then you'll have people separated out into units that you can manage and uh, that, that are amenable to socialism. His ultimate plan was always a socialist utopia. I mean, it was the same for all of these people. But that's the difference. Now, how, does this, how is this different from nationalism? Well, remember, nationalism on its own can be separate from socialism. Keep in mind that fascism is nothing more than a nationalist division of society along nation-state lines with the ultimate end goal of 
socialism in each nation. Nationalism, by contrast, simply means you care about your own nation. Natio, birth, right? That's the root of nation. What this means is you care about people that are like you. People who share the same race, culture, language, traditions, and borders as you do, who live in your kind of world. That these five criteria are uh, actually, uh, I culture and traditions are uh, redundant. I should have said culture and religion, faith. Okay, uh, so those those are the five criteria: race or blood, culture, faith, language, territory. These are your five criteria for a nation. You can divide people along those lines, but if you are a nationalist, and I am very much a nationalist, I am a Christian nationalist, I believe in the virtue of nations, you don't have to necessarily believe in socialism. I think socialism is unbelievably stupid. I am very much in favor of a view of the nation that puts its own people first, that puts their interests first, but uses market mechanisms to essentially leave people to hell alone and let them live as they please. Now, that is not to say that a nationalist is a capitalist. That is not to say a nationalist is a socialist. It just means that a nationalist wants to look out for his own people. Of this overarching sort of nationalist set, you have the subset of fascism. That's the way to think of it. Fascism is a subset of nationalism. Nationalism in and of itself is not a bad thing. When you look at nationalists like me, who believe in having a competent but small government that essentially keeps critical national industries under national control, that does not mean that we're advocating for socialism. That does not mean we're advocating for government control. It simply means that, let's say, you know, you have an oil-rich economy. You want to keep the oil under national control. So you you legislate in such a way that foreign shareholders cannot take majority control over your own national resources. And you have a tax system that favors your own people over outsiders. And you have a system of healthcare or education that favors your own people and your own national history rather than that of outsiders. And you have an immigration policy that keeps out people who aren't like you. These are nationalist instincts, nationalist ideals. Fascism inevitably results in much greater government control over the economy. Fascism is ultimately the same thing as socialism. The difference is, and it's very important to understand this, that fascism is marginally, and I stress this, marginally more workable than communism. Here's why. Class warfare, going back to the whole thing that started this all off, is not compatible with human nature, with the facts of human nature. It doesn't work. Because in an industrialized society, everybody's prosperity rises. Everybody becomes richer and everybody becomes better off over time. Which is why in industrial societies like England and Germany, class warfare did not work. Because the lower classes saw that there was a path out of grinding poverty and into the middle classes. They could work in the factories. Eventually, some of them could become entrepreneurs. Some of them could make their own money. Some of them had opportunities in the free market system. In Russia, it worked because people stayed poor. They were born poor. They lived poor. They died poor. Fascism works on the axis of nations, which is much easier because people naturally identify with their own kind. So if you split people by nation or race, let's say, I mean, race is a factor of nation, you then end up with a system that is much closer to human nature than something that is not. But ultimately, it's the same exact end. Again, fascism is stupid. It's a terrible system. It's just slightly less terrible than communism, but not by very much. So, uh, fifth, related to the above, are some countries only suited for the great man style of leadership? 
characterized by a highly charismatic capable leader with at minimum an authoritarian streak, Latin countries in particular come to mind along with Russia. Yes, a simple answer to that is yes. There are certain countries of certain heritages or I would say identities uh, that have been passed down through time where the great man approach is the only one that works. Russia is one of them. Uh, the Latin countries absolutely are another, but it's not just restricted to those. I mean, I would say every single country at some point or another has been subjected to great man thinking. Every single one. Uh, the, the way to look at these countries is not in terms of, you know, the, the, the current leadership. It is to think in terms of the cycle of government, what uh, Cicero pointed out in De Repubblica. Uh, governments inevitably go through three stages, and th th they cycle through these stages throughout you know, the, the entire existence of a country. They start with a tyrant or a god-king. Eventually, and this is a great misconception which I see so many times, kings cannot rule just on their own. It can't be done. It's not possible. They have to share power with an elite aristocracy or a, series, a set of nobles, an oligarchy, etc., they start out by keeping that oligarchy weak and terrified. But over time, the oligarchy gets pissed off and dissatisfied and rises up in rebellion against the king. And you have a, uh, an, an oligarchical government, which is not very much better. And in fact, out of the, out of, uh, compared to a kingly government, it's much worse. Um, then you have the oligarchy beginning to abuse the people. And the people get really pissed off. And they rise up and take over, and that results in democracy, which is just mob rule, which inevitably leads to tyranny and collapses much faster. So if we look at Russia, I mean, that's exactly what we see. What happens? It's like you had a king in charge. He pissed off his nobles. They rose up against him. He crushed them. The nobles resisted it some more. They, uh, they took over power. Uh, then they became, you know, corrupt and decadent and stupid and, uh, the, the masses rose up against them. Uh, that, that didn't last very long. And the October, the, the, actually the April revolution of 1917, most people don't realize there were two revolutions in Russia. There was one in sort of, um, April-ish time, I think. Uh, or, no, oh, it was earlier than that. I think it was February. I forget exactly. I mean, my, my Russian history is a bit shaky now. But it was like, it was early on in the year. And then in October, well, November, technically, um, by the Gregorian calendar, there was the actual communist revolution. And that is what was created the, the communist government. That was an uprising of the people, but it inevitably deteriorated very quickly back into singular great man politics. And inevitably that, you know, after Stalin died and after Khrushchev uh, went away, then you had Brezhnev, and that began to deteriorate because it resulted in these, these, these oligarchs basically ruling over the Soviet Union. And that eventually resulted in the breakup and the collapse of the Soviet Union and the brief resurgence of democracy. And then, you know, a strong leader initially started out strong, became very weak. He was, um, uh, booted out by or destroyed by his own oligarchs, many of whom were Jewish multi-billionaires. Uh, who raped the Russian people, they were thrown out and uh, presidential elections were held and the people supposedly took power, which they didn't really, but uh, supposedly, elected Vladimir Putin. And look where we are now. God King status. I mean, a very competent God King, a very good God King, but a God King nonetheless. Um, we have to keep in mind, this is a cycle of, of events, but yes, some nations appear to be more disposed to it than others. And Russia is definitely one of them. I think you need a king, a god king, to rule a country as big as Russia. It's just not possible with anything else. Uh, the Latin nations are an interesting study. They, they definitely have this, this big man syndrome. And I think it comes down to a national character flaw that they have. They, their view is, well, you know, it's, it's not my problem. It's the king's job to sort it out. You have to understand this idea of democracy, of self-responsibility, really the American ideal of self-government, self-responsibility, self-fulfillment, is very much an aberration. It's very odd. It's very unusual, historically speaking. Most people aren't like that. They don't think like that. 
most cultures throughout history have been hereditary monarchies or led by nobility. Um, the idea of people governing themselves is extremely weird. And I think this is food for thought. I mean, I, I don't pretend to be an expert in this area. I, my knowledge of biblical exegesis is very poor. But go look at uh, Genesis chapters, Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, where it talks about the watchers. And this ties directly into the first book of Enoch, where the, the idea of watchers who kind of guard over or watch over specific parts of the world is kind of rounded out. Now, you don't have to take the book of Enoch as, as canonical, and it's not. There's a lot of weird stuff that goes on in Enoch, which is why it's not part of the mainline Bible. But the, the, from the biblical worldview, and it's very important that as Christians we talk about the biblical worldview because it so influences everything around us. God has a divine counsel. He doesn't need one. I mean, he could run the entire universe just by thinking about it if he wanted to, but he doesn't want to. Why? I don't know. I'm not God. I don't pretend to be which may come as news to some of my listeners, but believe it, believe it or not, I don't actually, I'm not actually that arrogant. Um, God has a divine counsel of beings that he created, uh, just thought into existence, who give him advice and have their own free will, their own agendas, and he listens to them, he rejects them, he accepts them as he pleases. But ultimately, he has his goals in mind. He has a very clear intention for what he wants to do with the universe. And he listens to people giving, or beings giving him advice. Some of these beings rebelled against him. We know this. I mean, there was a divine rebellion. There was a war in heaven. And um, some of the beings of his divine council rejected God. And therefore, he rejected them and sent them to earth to govern over various parts of the world. And these watchers have their own agendas. And if you think in terms of watchers looking over different parts of the world, then you understand that these people have how different cultures evolved into such distinct ways of doing things. Why is it the East Asians have their own particular style of doing things? And despite all the differences, and there are huge differences, between South Korea, Japan, China, Vietnam, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos you know, Malaysia, Singapore, Taiwan, etc., etc., etc. Why is it that they share so many of the same common ideals and ideas and characteristics? Why is it that the Europeans, despite all of their problems, have some of the same basic ideas? And not even, you know, all Europeans, but like the Dutch and the English have a lot of the same ideas. The Spanish, the French, the Portuguese, the, the Italians, they all have a lot of the same ideas. The Germans, the Swedes, the, 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 the Scandicucks, they all have the same ideas. Why is that? The best mechanism I've found to explain it is the watchers. And each watcher looks over a particular part of the world and is in constant struggle or tension with some of the others. And those who are more faithful to God do his bidding more closely than the ones who have rebelled against him. And this leads us to national characteristics which carry on through time and space. Where if you look at the Spanish colonies, they inherit a lot of the same issues and problems that Spain had. That same big man mentality that it's not my problem, it's the king's problem. And if you look at America, it inherited a lot of, originally before it allowed itself to be swamped by immigrants, it inherited a lot of the self-reliant virtues of the English and Dutch Protestant settlers. It's just food for thought. You know, it's something to think about. Sixth and last. Um, having listened to Adam Piggott's recent podcast, uh, I have a curious question. As backward and barbaric as Islam can be, is their approach to women and their management the correct one? No, it's not. Not at all. Not even slightly. Here's the thing about Islam. It treats women as an inferior sex. It treats women as subjects of men, not partners, not, um, not, 
the only thing it gets right is that women are not equal to men. That's it. Like, literally, that's the only thing they understand correctly. Keep in mind that Islam is a bastardized heresy of Christianity. Always has been. It gets every single thing about the Christian Gospels and the Christian attitude to life completely wrong. It is hopelessly mixed up, muddled, you know, deeply, deeply broken at its core. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's by design, Islam is like that. It, it is a heresy and a very, very poor heresy at that. The Islamic understanding of women is along a grading scale. So men, free, okay, so free Arab Islamic men come at the very top of the hierarchy. And then below that are uh, free Islamic men who are non-Arab. And then below that come free Arab Islamic women. And below that, free non-Arab uh, Islamic women. So there's a very clear gradation. And then right at the bottom, you have uh, really down at the bottom, you have um, f uh, slave women or concubines of war who are not Arabs and are not Muslims. I mean, they are no better than uh, chattel, goods, to be bought and sold. That's, that's how Islam views women. Islam says that your, your women, uh, forbidden to you are all women except uh, those who are your wives and those that your right hand possesses. Muslims jump through all sorts of ridiculously convoluted hoops to try to explain how this does not mean slave woman or captive or concubine. It's, it's all bullshit. It means slave woman. And that was always the original understanding from the, not the 7th century, actually the 8th century onwards, because Islam in the 7th century did not exist. And that's becoming more and more clear. Islam, as we understand it today, first and foremost, is an Abbasid invention. It's a bastardization of Arab nationalist ideology that tried to fuse Christian gospels and Christian lectionaries from a heretical Gnostic and Reformed Judaic type sect with an Arab identity under Muawiyah and, uh, and the Umayyad caliphs, the Umayyad rulers. And then the the Persian Abbasids came along and just bastardized the whole thing. And the Islam that we know today is a result of that deep, ugly bastardization. So when you look at Islam today, the way it treats women is completely antithetical, as I said, to Christianity. The, the Quran and the Hadith all say that women are essentially a field, a tilth, to be plowed by their men at will. You know, you can take your woman, you can have sex with her whenever you want, you can, uh, you can, she has no right to say no, she has absolutely no right to, to deny her husband, etc., etc. She can be divorced at will, she can be, uh, she can be cast out of the home whenever she wants, whenever, whenever the, the husband wants. All the husband has to do to divorce his wife is say, talak, three times, I divorce you, talak, 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 and that's it, the marriage is done. Um, Islam, Shia Islam, uh, embraces the concept of muta marriage, uh, as, as I think does uh, certain parts of Sunni Islam. Uh, muta marriage is disgusting. I mean, it is, it is absolutely repulsive. It says that uh, you can have temporary wives, and uh, you know you can you can uh, you basically pay a, a sheikh or a, an imam a certain fee based on the length of the marriage contract. It's like this is prostitution. I mean that's all it is. In Islam, it, it, I think in this is specific to Shia Islam, as far as I know. If uh, a man divorces his wife says talaq to her three times, and then wants to take her back because he realized he made a mistake, the wife cannot go back to her husband until she slept with another man. So what happens is they, uh, they, they go to, you know, the, the man and the woman go to the local imam and pay him in, in London, you know, in, in the United Kingdom, the current rate is somewhere between 1,200 and 1,500 pounds. They pay him that fee. There's a bed in the back of the mosque he takes her into that bed and has his way with her and brings her back and hands her, hands her back to her husband and says, oh yeah, you know, 
uh, pronounce you man and wife and so on and so forth, go forth and... I mean, this is barbaric. It's absolutely disgusting. And this is what Islam says is legal. This is... It's madness. But this, according to Islam, is appropriate treatment of women. And I'm sorry, that's just, that's completely wrong in every possible way. This is not how you treat women. The Christian ethic of how you treat women has been completely misunderstood, as if we are to pedestalize women and venerate them and worship them. And I blame the Catholics a lot for this. Not completely, but a lot. Um, they put Virgin Mary on such a high pedestal that, you know, somehow all women are supposed to conform to that. No, no, that's not how it works. A woman in Christianity is a vessel for life. She is a partner. She is, she is there for us as men to join ourselves with as two souls in, you know, two, two, two souls in one, basically. Two, two, um, the two become one flesh. That's what Jesus taught. What God has, what God has created, let no man unmake. What God has made one, let no man unmake. That's our philosophy. So a husband who marries his wife, and that's the only concept of marriage that we consider to be legal and correct, is before God, you take a vow to love and honor your wife. And that's, that's, that's how we look at it. It's, it's a, it is true love. It is honor. Of a woman. We respect her. We view her as part of ourselves. We do not abuse her. We treat her almost as a, not exactly, but almost as, as something holy, as something sacred. Because no man would disabuse, no man would abuse his own body. So the theory goes. Therefore, why should a man abuse his wife? That's how we treat women. That's how we should treat women. As partners, as lovers, as friends, as but not as equals. I mean, a man and a woman are not equal at all. What does the Bible say? What do Paul's epistles say on the subject of marriage? A wife should submit to her husband as the head of the household. A husband must love his wife and not be harsh with her. Don't beat her. Don't abuse her. Be sensitive to her feelings. Understand that she is the weaker vessel. Treat her with love and respect. And what does love mean? It means you give up yourself to, uh, for the sake of the one you, you love. You, you give up your own base desires. You give up your own needs. You put the needs of somebody else first before your own. What is that if not veneration? True veneration in the sen in, in the correct sense of loving someone such that she becomes more important to you than you would. The best way to put it is a man who truly loves his wife would die for her. And once you've hit that point, once you've once you've hit that realization that you'd willingly give up your life so that your wife can live, that's marriage. That's when you know you found the right person. So no, uh, there are, Islam's approach to women and their management is, is garbage. It's, it's horrifying and no one should ever regard it as correct. And the funny thing is when you, when you try to talk to Muslims, particularly Western born and raised Muslims about these hidden facts about, uh, but Islam, they're horrified. They're like, I had no idea this was true. They, they, they can't believe it. They, they go into, it's hilarious. Go listen to Christian Prince and some of the debates that he does with Muslims. It's absolutely hysterical because they, they go into like brain freeze and shock and they, they immediately try to dodge and evade the question and point out holes in the scriptures, which don't really exist and point out problems with Christianity, which aren't really problems and point out flaws in logic, which aren't really flaws. And uh, he just has a great time with them because he just pins them down. And he says, no, no, no. Answer the question. Answer the question. Tell me why this is so. Tell me why this hadith says this. And I, I actually listened to him. I remember um, some months ago, he was talking to a, a black guy living in Sweden, somebody from Africa, 
who had uh, a wife and daughters, and his wife started listening to Christian Prince, and she told her husband, hey, you need to listen to this. And he's like, no, shut up, woman, you don't know what you're talking about. And finally, he grudgingly turned on um, Christian Prince's broadcast, and Christian Prince told him, this is what the Quran and the Hadith say about your daughters. Do you accept this religion? And he was like, he was horrified. He was almost in tears. And he said, no, I've made a huge mistake. I am so sorry. Um, please forgive me. And Christian Prince says, I it's not in my power to forgive you. You need to ask Jesus to forgive you. And that's what he did. He, he and his whole family converted to Christ that same night. Saved. Saved by the grace of God. Just because of that. So, that is how we treat women. We don't treat them as objects. We treat them as living souls. We treat them as the weaker sex. Uh, that's how we should treat them anyway. We should never venerate them as, you know, putting them up on a pedestal. That's ridiculous. We should never worship them. We should instead always take the lead as the heads of the household. We must always be the ones in charge, but we must always accept that they have a right to speak and we must ask for their, their input, their counsel. What do you think we should do? You know, discuss things as partners, never as equals. There has to be one leader in the house and one follower. The wife's role is that of a follower. The husband's role is that of the leader, the man in charge. And if he can't do that, then, you know, it's going to be a huge problem for the rest of the marriage. It always is. I'm very much simplifying things. I realize that. But the one thing I want you to take away from this is that Islam's model of marriage is not a model of marriage at all. As CP himself says, there is no such thing as marriage in Islam. And the way that they handle women is not a way that you want to emulate in any way. You do not want to emulate Islam's endorsement of child rape with uh, Aisha. Aisha was, Aisha was uh, six years old when she was betrothed, betrothed, betrothed to Muhammad. Uh, Aisha was nine years old when he slept with her and she was a child. Um, Muslims try to worm their way out of that one all the time using the most ridiculous methods possible. It's all nonsense. It's right there in black and white in the Hadith. She was a child. Uh, they try to justify adultery. They try to justify rape. They try to justify female slavery. They try to justify prostitution. Uh, they try to justify all manner of degeneracy and depravity through their religion. This is not a way to treat women at all. Never was, never will be. And under no circumstances should we as Christians look to them as models of uh, what we should or should not do in marriage. That's, that's absolutely ridiculous. Okay, uh, I've gone on for far too long, I'm sure. Um, I hope that helped to answer the questions and uh, helped to explain certain views or ways of thinking. Uh, by all means, feel free to add your thoughts in the comments and let me know what you think. And uh, yeah, I will hopefully be with you again in the next Didactic Mind podcast, whenever that is, and uh, which should be hopefully very soon. Uh, most people don't realize I actually find it hard to speak for long periods of time. My throat always seizes up. And uh, so it takes me a day or two to recover after doing one of these long podcasts. But Thank you very much, as always, for joining me. This has been Didactic Mind, uh, no, excuse me, Domain Query, uh, Fruit Salad. And this is Didact, over and out.